You're at the Coaching Inn, 3D Coaching's virtual pub where we enjoy conversations with people who are engaged in the world of coaching. Welcome, I'm Claire Pedrick and today I'm in conversation with Stephen Jenkins and Julia Hill. Stephen put a really interesting post on LinkedIn about really wanting people to come to conversations to think and it made me think a lot about do people come to the conversation with an expectation that they'll be doing some good work Uh, and I love the fact that Stephen picked up the word thinker Uh, and Stephen thank you for the shout out in your post that was really lovely Uh, so welcome to the coaching in so Stephen tell us a little bit about you and your journey and then I'll ask you Julia to introduce yourself yes I I came to coaching entirely by accident. Um, I have been working over 40 years. Uh, I started my corporate life at Mars in selling and marketing. And then I ran uh, an advertising agency for 15 years and then moved into consultancy, advising people who were wanting to raise funds, who were struggling to get through glass ceilings. So I guess that was a type of coaching didn't see it in that way and then two and a half years ago the gentleman who acted for me when I sold my agency to an international advertising group who's become a sort of serial uh, chairman asked me to come in and act as a role model for one of the senior managers in the group which I did and within three months I was coaching 25 people I'd never done that before. I absolutely loved it. And at my stage in life, I'm at this crossroads where I really struggle with the idea of retirement, really struggle with it. It just doesn't fit me at all. And here I was, the opportunity to use my 40 odd years of experience in sales marketing to help people in a completely non-competitive environment and getting a massive buzz when people got the light bulb moment. Wow, I hadn't thought about that. Or I did what you suge- what we were talking about last week. And do you know what? This has happened. Or do you know I got my promotion last week? Thank you so much. That means so much. Uh, and so it's it's come late to me, completely not by design, but I did actually take uh, the PCEC course at Henley so that I could get some kind of structure, which was extremely valuable. So Fantastic. that's me. And the curiosity about thinking, Stephen? Well, that, I have to say, Claire, that's, uh, that's down to you. Oh, thank um, you. <laughs> no, in, entirely down to you. But then I reread Nancy Klein and she talks a lot about the thinker. Yeah. And uh, I suppose as a recent graduate of Henley, you come out with your toolkit and your and your grow model and uh, Stokers, of course, which was uh, um, care of yours truly or yours truly. <laughs> um, and when I read your book after listening to the Henley um uh uh webinar i thought this makes a lot of sense 
to go into a coaching session without an agenda is quite uh, frightening, but also very liberating. Yeah. And if you can just shut up and let someone talk and reveal their innermost thinking, it's unbelievable. And I have found that probably the biggest aha moment since uh, joining uh, the Henley course. Wow. Because it is honestly, I, I mean, there's a lot of things about it that matter to me. And one is if I go into a conversation and do all the work, why ever would the other person do any? <laughs> yeah. And, and that's where the whole concept of what's the least that I need to do in service of them being able to do some good thinking came from. Well, well thank you, Stephen. Julia, you come from a completely different space. Tell us your story. Yeah, so um, like many people, I suspect possibly like many women, I've had a weird range of jobs ranging from stately home management to secondary school teaching, uh, long period at home with kids, uh, then a period um, uh, working in museums, got into volunteer management, then got into working uh, in volunteer management uh, with um, areas of high multiple deprivation index. So, and as on part of that journey, <clears throat> I did the Transforming Conversations course, and I'm embarrassed to say I can't remember when I did it, but it might even be as much as 10 years ago. You I can think remember. you're right. I yeah. know, I can, I can remember where it was, and we yeah. didn't use that venue for a long time. Yeah, so it might have been as much as, anyway, it, there were all sorts of things about doing that Transforming Conversations course that were a revelation to me, but one of the most shocking for me, that has been almost the most useful thing, is realising um, how absolutely hopeless I was as a trained secondary school teacher at asking open questions. Um, I thought I was really good at questions because I used to check whether people had been listening to me by asking me questions. And it was only when I did the Transforming Conversations course that I thought, oh my goodness, I've spent all this time asking lots of closed questions. And I, I find it really hard to shift my head into asking open questions. But that has really stayed with me ever since. And um, at the moment, I'm working in a church context in Somerset, and I, I do a lot of work with our team on helping churches who are in periods of transition. So they need to be in a thinking space. It might be because they've got a vacancy or it might be because they want to refresh their vision. It might be conflict. It might be all sorts of things. And in that situation, what we found, apart from the Stoker stuff, which I also come back to endlessly, is, is the power of an open question that allows the space for people then to think um, is amazing, but it's a bit of a high wire act, isn't it? Because if you go into a meeting with a group of people and you ask an open question, it doesn't look as if you're doing any work, which if you're being paid can make you feel a bit inadequate. But in my experience, it's the, it's where the transformation happens because, because you're doing all the things that you talked about in the Transforming Conversations course, which is you're not taking the responsibility away from people. You're creating a framework in which together we can do the work that will do the work that they need to do. Uh, so I, I've just, it's very wonderful to, to have done that course so long ago and to still be reaping, I think, almost increasingly the benefits of it, actually. Wow. So, yeah. So, yeah, tr trying to go into meetings, particularly with groups, most of my work is with groups um, and restraining myself from seeming impressive, which, you know, it's always a trap, isn't it? Uh, doing less, 
but doing it more thoughtfully, creating the space for other people to do the thinking they need to do, and then trusting that something good will come from it. And that's about not being in control completely, isn't it? Which is a bit scary. Yes. And one of the interesting things we've done, is we've developed a set of questions to, to use with um, churches. And I found it very interesting because, because we developed them, we could totally see the sense of them. But of course, they require facilitation. And many leaders are used to leading they might even be used to chairing meetings they're probably good at directing people they're not always gifted facilitators <laughs> and actually having to name to people that if you want to use these effectively in your context it's asking for facilitation not direction and that is as much about tone mm. as it is about facilitation I think because I yes because you can ask a question in a yeah. statement yes I yeah so when we use questions like that um, it usually requires an enormous amount of reassurance you have to be really explicit that this is not a trap that there's not a right answer that your secret it's a bit like when um, clergy go into school assemblies and the children realize that the answer to the question they're asking always should be jesus you know it's not an open question um whereas you do the opposite don't you you say there is no right answer here and we don't know what the answers are going to be but if we listen to each other and to the answers we give we will learn some really wonderful things and that will help us to move forwards yeah but it's risky obviously yeah mm. So, Stephen, what's been the inner journey for you moving from consultant, advisor, wise man to facilitating other people to think? A big change. Um, I'm a naturally outgoing extrovert, like to be in control, used to being in control, used to leading and managing. And I've had to learn very different strategies in being a coach. Um, first of all, you have to recognize the uh, imposter syndrome. Having been successful in running an agency and used to being called in for your expertise, you're then a, a newly qualified coach. You've got the badge, but it's still bright and shiny. And you think, oh my God, can I do this? Um, and then your book says, and don't go in with an agenda, let it flow. You think, oh, this is really tough because surely if they're paying me to do this, they're gonna want me to lead them all the way through it. So to answer your question, the journey has been to learn to be quiet, not easy for me, to learn to listen, to learn to suppress my ego. And one of the things I've read in a number of the books that I've read is to believe that the person you are coaching has all the abilities to crack their problem. And I think that's the most liberating thing, 
that and in your book you say stay forward focused it's so easy when you sit down with someone to say well claire what are you bringing to coaching today well i'm having a problem with um the board that i work on oh so tell me how is that at which point it's all about me and not yeah. about you and i think and, and we're shooting into backwards. the past yeah so i'd say that's that's my change it's a massive vault fast for me yeah i thank you for your honesty <laughs> and thank you for talking about the word ego because i don't think we talk about that enough because we have to do something with our ego because otherwise it just gets in the way and i i think that's one of the reasons why frameworks are so helpful for because for us ego-driven gobby opinionated people <laughs> without a good framework we will default to our bossiest self which in my case is quite bossy so I really, really need that framework. And it's a liberation. It's not just a liberation for the person that you're providing the framework for. It's a liberation for me as well, because without it, I would be dashing in and solving everything in the most inappropriate manner. So, um, yeah, I think it's it's fascinating how that works. And I really love what you say, Stephen, about that whole business about um, that people have what they need themselves. So we talk in our context a lot, and I did in my previous job, you know about it being asset based we're we're so often tempted to be deficit based what is the problem that we're trying to solve rather than what assets do we have here yeah. uh, and and it's quite good sometimes to say to people um well in our context we'd say do you believe god is present but that obviously doesn't work in every context but but you know do, do you believe things are possible and if you do well okay let's see what's possible then yeah well, in my whole of my working life, or particularly the last 30 years, I've been in charge. Uh, when I was running a direct advertising agency, I'd go to see a client who said, we have a problem of this. How do you resolve it? And my job was to say, here's a strategy. This is how we implement it. This is what it'll cost. Right, get on with it. Um, when I was advising clients who wanted to raise money or to sell they would want me to hold their hand and do it so coaching is you know you you instinctively take that in with you and think well you, you wanted me to coach why because i've got a problem with my career i've got a problem with what i do next so help me through it it's it's the same thing but you go about it in a radically different way and it's very difficult to change the habits of a lifetime yeah. So why did you do it, Stephen? Well, I, I did it because it I fell over it. As I said, it it came to me and thank goodness that it did, because it's one of the most enjoyable things I've ever done, because in Mars, where I started working an intensely competitive environment, full of really smart people. So you have to fight to get to the top, you know, sink or swim. Uh, and then when you go out in the outside world, fighting against other agencies, being pitching, whatever. 
For once in my life, I'm not competitive with my coachee. I'm there to help them. And that's wonderful. Yeah, that's but that's a learnt behaviour, isn't it? Because I think lots of coaches are competitive with the person who's in the thinking chair. Really? Yes. So I listen to hundreds of recordings of people having conversations. And one of the biggest issues is where the coach wants to run over the winning line first. So you know that thing where, where, you know, for me, in a coaching conversation, there's probably one question that is the game changer. And it's never the one we expect. And it's certainly never the one we thought about before we went in the room. And usually it's really meaningless, but it is the game changer. So it might be you you go and, or you are silent and they fall into the revelation. But the thing I notice most about coaches, particularly the more experience they get, is the capacity to notice when the thinker is about to do that push that final push forward and the coach jumps in and makes the meaning and I think that's competition and of course if the coach runs in and makes the meaning now it's not meaning anymore because the person didn't make it for themselves and we can't make meaning for somebody else and it is really annoying it's really annoying because you can hear this most amazing highly skilled conversation just claps. <laughs> it's a bit like when I was managing a sales force and the rule, the absolute golden rule is do not interrupt the sales conversation. So I used to say to my uh, salesperson, introduce me as someone from human resources. Oh, here's Stephen. He's out from HR to learn what the real world's about. Then I could just blend into the background. And I watched this interaction between the customer and the salesperson, and he was playing games with her. And I could see that he all she had to do was ask for the order. And it was so painful. I said, whatever her name was, maybe you'd just like to ask him for the order. And the chap, the customer smiled, reached for the order, signed it. She gave me the biggest king you've ever imagined in the car. And I, I learned my lesson. You've got to let someone die, but you don't interrupt. And that is what you were saying, that when that critical moment is coming, you've got to be mindful that it might just be the bombshell that changes their life and you don't want to talk across it. And I think that um, I know that when I used to do consultancy, back to what you were saying, Claire, I think that often it's the unexpected thing that turns out to be the, so I, I remember once doing some work with an organization and and there was a completely incidental question that I felt actually was beyond my area of expertise and therefore I was quite uncomfortable even getting engaging with it, but it was the thing that made the most difference. So in, a, in an odd way, that all the stuff that I was paid to do was less significant than the one thing that just came out of me observing what I noticed. And it's back to that noticing thing, isn't it? And I think that's a lot, both what I think our team try and do when we're working with groups is to notice what's going on, but also to encourage 
people to notice each other and to notice notice things like where the energy is in the room and what makes people smile and it, it just just to notice mm-hmm. a bit more so be a bit less task focused and a bit more a bit more noticing and and I guess I suppose that in order to notice stuff that does require some space doesn't it so yeah so it's creating that Experience. that noticing space yeah and it's about being not so close and not too far away. So that that kind of metaphorical position mm. of the coach and the thinker, I think also is really useful because when we're too close in, mm. we can't see a jolly thing. No. In one of the contexts we work in, uh, a group that we work with call, calls that the balcony view. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I think it is true. Sometimes you have to be in there, but you also have to step back. But there's something, it's an amazing gift to be in a space with people where you feel as if you're doing very little, but the impact feels really significant. It's a, it's a, it's just glorious, isn't it? When it works. Um, Yeah, but it's scary as well. I think it takes quite a lot of experience to be able to observe some of these things. Um, before I took the Henley course, before I got into coaching properly, I became a coachee. And this uh, lady was coaching me. She was very good. She was very calm. And she observed. She said, do you mind if I make an observation? She said, you use a lot of couldn'ts and shouldn'ts. You know, you're very tough on yourself. And I sat and thought about that a lot. And she's absolutely right. I've been enormously self-critical all my life. And I sat and dwelt on that for a long time. And that I changed completely as a result of that thinking process that came out of that observation. That was one case where a coach's requested observation was very powerful. And I think you had to be pretty experienced to be able to notice. I noticed uh, that your eyes went up just then. What was going on there? You know, wow, you've got to be on the ball to spot these things. Um, Yeah, but also you need to know, Stephen, that 80% of what you notice isn't very useful, but you just have to notice it anyway. And the 10% or the 20% is the bit where the change will happen. Because sometimes you go, I notice you just looked away. And they want to go, yeah, I had a speck in my eye. (laughs) (laughs) And is that something then about um, in that role that one has in those conversations, whether they're with individuals or groups, um, schooling oneself to to try to remain non-anxious it's that non-anxious presence thing isn't it because if you if you get anxious then when you notice something and then it turns out it wasn't significant you can think oh brat I've got that wrong and then you become sort of uh, almost too tense to then properly inhabit the space so you sort of got to go in there knowing that you're not going to feel comfortable the whole time and you're not going to feel like a wild success but at some point you may in that interaction 
uh, be part of something shifting and that will be glorious but it will only as you say be a small part of it and for most of it you'll probably think good grief I wasn't really earning my keep there um, or I was just actually massively screwing it up you know I, I, any of any, any of the things on that spectrum really yeah, yeah. but we're back to ego aren't we because we make yeah. it about us so yeah. quickly yeah so I feel I have to make this conversation work. Yeah. And then when it's when I'm not doing enough, then I make it about me. Yeah. When I'm doing too much, I make it about me. Yeah. And it's not about me. No. And this is the problem between mentoring and coaching, I think, Claire. Um, and they are such radically different interventions, aren't they? Because with a mentor, I'm I'm paying you to help me do this. Um, and coaching is a different approach altogether. However, one thing I will say, going back to one of your earlier questions, Claire, is that I've become a better mentor having learned how to coach. I bet you have. So you can actually say, well, so how, how do you overcome this type of objection? The old one would have been, Right, well, there's several ways you can do it. Da, 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 da. Tell, me, tell me what you think. When was the last time you had this objection and what did you say? And then they go on and they say, yeah, thanks for that. I, think I didn't tell you anything. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Mentoring, I think, is deeply dangerous when the mentor is very wise. And I remember that as being another very, very helpful and slightly startling thing from the Transforming Conversations course, when you said that in order to coach, you don't need to know the subject matter. And, and that's so counterintuitive, isn't it, in, in most of what we do. And it, it took me a little while to get my head around it, but it, it's so true, isn't it? Because... Um, the temptation when we do know the content is to be wedded to our understanding of it rather than to be open to hearing what the other person is saying about it. So you can see why that is a trap. And actually, I'm very grateful you did say that because I found myself a little bit after that line managing several people in areas of expertise that I absolutely didn't share. And I found it less frightening because, because it you can have a role with somebody when you you're not the expert in their field but you can still um nurture them in in how they're developing in their work mm. so yeah really interesting fun enough when you're doing your business school course um all these pretty bright people and we had a super cohort in our group a really lovely well blended group um and we go through our little models and eventually you think it seems awfully contrived and again I don't wish to keep pumping up your book Claire but it did resonate with <laughs> Please me do. <laughs> that in your in your book you say look I know that in your course you're taught to use a model but I actually disagree and I think what I've taken from this is there are different circumstances where structured models are actually a barrier. And generally, I've found that the more senior the person, the less 
structure you need to have because often a senior person finds it quite lonely. Who do they go to when they're running a business to say to one of their direct reports, you know, I haven't got a clue what I'm doing with this company or to go to the private equity fund and say, I know I've been doing this job for six months, but I haven't got a clue how to get this business sold. So who do they talk to? You know, and therefore with a coach, you need to say, well, what's going on in your mind? You know, where would you, where would you see your, this being in say a year's time? Oh, that's a good question. Mm. At which point, once their eyes have gone up, you just shut the hell up and let them get on with it. So yeah. I think, I think sometimes the models are very good with a, maybe a more junior person or someone that's struggling with the, the whole process to get them going. Just and I, yeah, I mean, I would say use them last. So last week's podcast with Mike White, um, for anyone who's listened to it, was about about tools and techniques. And actually, when they work well the initiative for them comes from the thinker anyway. So they say, have you got a way that I could, that you can help me think about this rather than it. So it's about where does it come from? And I think it's about using the tools last and not first, Mm. because otherwise we're dragging somebody through. Yeah. Julia, I'm really interested because you worked in asset-based community development, didn't you, for a while? So when, yes, when I worked for a previous organization, it was all around asset-based community development. So I, I can't claim to have done an enormous amount on the ground with that. Uh, it was more at an organizational level, but that definitely has informed the rest of my working life uh, since that job. And and so particularly now, um, I do some, I have some responsibility for working in areas of um, high on the index of multiple deprivation. And, and, and I think the fact that you go in somewhere where some people go in and think this is a group of people who are, you know, insufficiently formally educated, have too few, you know, monetary resources um, and all of that sort of stuff. Whereas I think if you've, if you've been soaked in that asset-based community development, it really encourages you to go in and say, what is here, not is not what is absent. And that is incredibly, so I was in a church yesterday, actually, um, which would fit that sort of model. And, and there was a moment when something went wrong, and one of the congregation just stood up and just beautifully, you know, did the right thing at the right time, unexpected, because, because he had such assets at his disposal. And he was in a context where he felt confident enough to use the assets he had. Whereas if you'd put him in a different environment where there was more judgment about whether he fitted the normal model of leadership, he probably wouldn't have been able to do that. So what does it look like creating an environment where people can have confidence in their abilities and flourish uh, rather than feeling that they are judged as inadequate or failing? Um, I think it's it's amazingly transformative yeah and confidence to use the assets they have yeah it's such a great phrase isn't it because that's what we're doing in coaching we 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 want the people we're working with to have confidence in the assets they have that they're going to be able to do some good work here yeah and 
and I think, and I say this as a secondary school teacher, not not somebody who who's criticising from the outside. When I look back on my um, second, I didn't teach for a huge length of time, but my observation looking back is quite a lot of people come out of secondary school, quite a high percentage of people come out of secondary school feeling quite as if they're failures. And that that doesn't help people to then flourish. Um, and I think the, there is a lot of, we operate quite a lot of systems that help people to understand themselves as failures rather than successes and that doesn't equip them as well as feeling what what are my assets and what can I do rather than oh my goodness I'm not very good at maths or whatever it is you know Hmm. and that speaks into how coaching is commissioned doesn't it is coaching commissioned from a deficit Hmm. this isn't going well so you must have a coach yes or from an asset, yes. which is, there's such huge potential here, let's find you a coach. Yeah. yeah. And, and as you said that, it, it made me think, actually, we're dealing with ghosts in the room. Definitely. So when somebody's been told to come and they think that it's deficit-based, hmm. we're probably sitting in the room alongside their least favourite secondary school teacher. Yeah, which is possibly their maths teacher. Yes. <laughs> Yeah, no, I let's, think that's true. Let's not do down maths teaching. No, no, no. Yeah. I taught maths as so among did other I. things. No, yeah. So yeah. So <laughs> I, I just like to put that out there. That wasn't. That was. Yeah. No, I think that's true. And I think those. Um, I think those ghosts are very strongly present. Uh, I think we think you know that we think you know. I'm in my late fifties. We think that our schooling is a long time ago. But it happens at a very, very formative point in our life. 100%. And so and so those ghosts are very noisy, uh, even if not terribly visible. And maybe that's why. Yeah. Like, yeah. But maybe that's why sometimes it's difficult to coach people Mm. because they see us as the teacher. Which is why I think, you know, things like Stokers and the framework um, but also the attitude you spoke earlier about um, it's your tone as much as what you say so um, introducing it with much more reassurance but not patronizing reassurance than you think is is necessary is probably you sort of have to prove that you believe you've got an asset in front of you before you can even do the work I suspect Mm. um and actually, we we um, I remember we lived for a while in a in an area that that um, again had very low levels of formal education and very low levels of sort of financial uh, resilience. And I remember it was it was a while before people could believe we were there because we wanted to be, rather than because somebody had told us we needed to be. So, and that's a similar thing. I think it's just no, no, we're here, we're here because we we want to be with you. Uh, because you are a person of value, not because we're some amazingly saintly person who's going to rescue you, which is n- never going to. It's not good. It's not a good feel, is it, if you're the recipient mm. of being rescued? Mm. I love this idea of ghosting. I was a naughty boy in my in my youth, and I passed my eleven plus. But my parents were told. I don't know why we should bother sending him to the grammar school, which has limited spaces. Uh, 
we'd rather send someone that was uh, going to make better use of it. So we're going to send him off to a school that typically turned out plumbers, electricians and woodworkers. Not that there's anything wrong with that, it's just that I'm manifestly incapable of doing any of those things. Fortunately, there was a group of academic boys that went through and I ended up going to university and doing research and whatever, but I was graded as in those days as being in the maths stream or the English stream. Yeah. And you were, and neither of the two should mix. And so I just grew up thinking I was useless at numbers until I joined the Mars group where you needed to be enormously numerate. And suddenly I found I'm actually good with numbers. <laughs> and how much time and waste has gone into that process of being assuming I was no good at something when actually mm -hmm. I was more than capable. It's a very mm -hmm. interesting point. So there's something about believing that the person who we're with has got the capacity to do some good thinking. Yeah. And there's also something about what do we need to do and how do we need to be so that they also believe that and we're not accidentally disempowering them by accidentally doing or being or sounding like somebody or something where they feel that they have to give away their power and we have to do the work. Mm. And, and that's why I need the techniques that one learns through things like transforming conversations and other frameworks, because at my most powerful, uh, I am the most disempowering and I need a good framework to step into that space. I, I, I don't think it comes naturally to me. Um, I need that framework. And so I really, really value it because I know that without it, I could be an absolute steamroller. Yeah. So a bit of depowering of yourself. Yeah. Yeah. It's, you have to give it away, don't you? But the, and that's what the framework helps you do. Yeah. But you have to believe it's worth giving it away because otherwise, you know, you won't do it authentically. Wow. Well, we're coming to the end of our time. What an interesting conversation, Stephen and Julia. If there was one thing that you would say you were taking away from this conversation, what is it? see Julia processing so I'm gonna let her do it <laughs> no actually what I was processing was I've done so much thinking I can't extract anything from it <laughs> certainly nothing that will make me sound intelligent uh yeah I yeah mm. it I think it's just reinforced for me um in all that I've heard how, how much that business of laying your ego to one side you know Stephen you know had the courage to name the ego it's it's laying your ego to one side and not seeking to prove yourself and actually what you said Claire about not not seeking to get over the line first mm. so at that moment when you're tempted to step over the line first that's probably the moment where the, the most important moment for pulling back and to creating the space so yeah that's that's very that's very very useful I think for me, the concept of ghosting, I'm going to take away and have a real good think about it because 
I've definitely been um, exposed to it and lived with it for many years. Um, and I'll be very mindful of it in my future coaching uh, interactions uh, to make sure that I'm not, that I'm aware of any ghosting uh, and not pandering to it or reinforcing it. That's been, and it's been interesting that our two backgrounds are so different. That's why I invited you both. Yeah. <laughs> Method I, of madness. Absolutely. I think what's interesting about what you're saying there, Stephen, is that actually the simplest way to deal with ghosts is often to say to somebody, have we got some ghosts in here? Yeah. Um, and just name it. I've got so much to think about. I I really respect you, um, Steve, Stephen, for naming the ego, because I think I think we rarely do. And it just opened up a whole new part of the conversation. So thank you for that. And then I'm now I've now invented a new word called depowering. <laughs> what do we need to do to depower? Is an interesting question. So uh, Julia Hill, Stephen Jenkins, thank you so much for coming. I'll pop you your contact details in the show notes so that people can contact you if they so wish. Yeah. And I'm Claire Pedrick, and you've been at the Coaching Inn. Thank you, everybody. Bye bye. We've enjoyed it. Thank you. Thank you. Bye. If you've enjoyed what you've heard today, we'd love you to share the podcast with a friend or leave a comment on social media. And if you'd like to become a regular at The Coaching Inn, you can subscribe on Podbean and all major podcast channels. We look forward to welcoming you next time. You've been listening to The Coaching Inn, 3D Coaching's virtual pub. For more information, check out 3dcoaching.com.